Okay. Big head. Well, um, I'm going to move this out of the way because I know from experience it doesn't really help me. If you can't hear me, say, okay? If you wave at me, I know you can't hear me. Um, <laughs> right. Kingdom of God. So, second of our series on the Kingdom of God. And we're looking at the Kingdom of God not being geographical, but all creation. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but um, actually, I love geography at school. How, uh, any, any people here like geography at school? A few people. It's not the most popular subject in the, in the, in the curriculum, is it? But I really enjoy geography. But the kingdom of God is not geographical. And we're going to be looking at that. And I found this quote, which I'd like really to echo through a lot of what we do today. The quote goes like this. The kingdom of God is primarily the dynamic... It's there. <coughs> the dynamic reign or kingly rule of God and derivatively, that's a big word, isn't it? The sphere in which this rule is experienced. Derivatively meaning consequently in, in this kind of way. doesn't actually mean exactly that, but it'll do for, for these purposes. The kingdom of God is primarily the dynamic reign or kingly rule of God, and consequently the sphere in which that rule is experienced. So our first question of the day, how big is the sphere of God's dynamic reign in you? And I picked a little hamster in its ball there, just to say, if the sphere of God's kingdom rule in your life just enables you to go along like this, then it's not particularly effective. And one of the things that we know is that the God's king, God has a vision for a kingdom which is much, much bigger than that. Here's an aside for you while I think of it. I was looking at the, the town, the name of the town, Basildon. Basildon, um, the word Basildon has two parts to it. It's actually Anglo-Saxon, and it means Beortil's Hill. Beortil being a guy, obviously some way back, a farmer or something, and Dun being the Saxon word for hill. But I was thinking about that and seeing how it's been changed. It's become Basildon. The word for Basil in Greek means king. So I'm, I like to change the meaning Basildon to the king's hill, uh, the hill of the king. And I remember having a, a picture about two years ago, and if you remember, I had a vision of the, the symbol for Basildon, the logo for the town, with a crown over the top of it. The, the, the God's, God's crown, God's kingly rule over Basildon, over the king's hill. And long may it be so. I think we need to pray constantly that the impact of us as God's people on our town um, in every way is, is powerful. We long to see God's rule extended right across the earth, don't we? There's a, a passage, a favourite passage of mine, and I know of others, from Isaiah 2. It talks about how God sees his kingdom rule. And it says this, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established 
like the hill of the Lord. The king's hill. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. There's another set of verses which I want to bring, very relevant from this time of year. Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What amazing vision God has for his kingdom. A place where uh, plowshares, and uh, plowshares, swords into plowshares, Spears into pruning hooks. Into a place where there is peace. He will reign over his kingdom. Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and power the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will judge not by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. We're painting a very amazing picture here. Further on it says, the wolf will live with the lamb. I found this picture. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will with the, lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion, the yearling together, and a child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into a viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. There's a theme through all those passages about the hill of the Lord. God is building something which he wants to stand above everything else. Wonderful picture, isn't it? An amazing image. How God sees kingdom rule. It's not how man sees kingdom rule, is it? This is not how man pictures rule at all. If, anything, if history is anything to go by, it's so easy to believe that our world can be changed. And men and women across our world think they can change our world and down the ages have thought they could. Um, I spent a bit of time looking at that and I, I just found myself thinking about all those guys that 
all down the centuries have thought, no, this is wrong. I'm going to go in and take control. I don't know if any of you have played this. Ever played Risk? It's, the, it's, a, it's a game of world domination. You, you become a particular colour of armies, and the idea is that you start, start with a particular country, and your idea is that you go and dominate as far as you can, and you, by the roll of a dice, you take over other countries. And all down the centuries, in different parts of our world, there have been different bunches of people who thought they could, by conquering, by dominating, by building their own empires, change the world. Very few of them, if any actually, had any um, motive to bring in the kingdom rule of God. I don't believe they did anyway. Daniel had an image of this in Daniel 2, you remember this? This image that Daniel had. If you want to turn to Daniel 2 quickly. Um, it's verse 31. See, God has an image of how he wants his world to be. A kingdom not an empire. I'll come back to that in a minute. And what Daniel saw, if you want to just have a look yourselves, I'm not going to, uh, I'll read a bit, but not much. Um, verse 31 of Daniel 2 says, You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, etc., etc., etc. Now here's the, here's the statue. It was of gold, head, silver body, bronze here, and then iron legs, and then his feet were made of iron and clay. And what he then saw, is it shown there? I can't see it, but there was a, what he saw was a, a rock which was cut from the mountain, not by human hands, and thrown against the feet. And of course the feet were the most vulnerable part and the whole thing toppled down. It's an amazing picture of the complete futility and the complete rubbish of uh, uh, this kind of empire building that went on. What, why do I say that? Well, because each of these different parts represented different empires that came after Nebuchadnezzar, who Daniel was talking to at the time. Nebuchadnezzar's empire is at the top, then we have, um, I think it was the Assyrian, uh, yes, the Assyrian, then the um, Macedonian, then the Roman, and then, well, on from there, really. But um, I actually thought what we could do is just have a quick squint at empires. Have anybody ever done this? I don't know if you've ever looked. But here we go. That's Babylonia. Okay, I'm going to be very quick, I promise. There's a Babylonian empire. If you if got lost, you don't know quite where we are, there's the Mediterranean Sea, Britain's up here, um, Arabian Gulf, India's down there, this is Africa. Okay, so there's the, the Babylonian Empire. Then we get the Assyrian Empire. Do you notice something? They're slightly bigger. Okay, and then this is the Macedonian. Alexander got almost into India and much further up here and further into to Egypt. So a bigger one. Then there's Rome. Rome, bigger than that. And then it was during Rome, the Roman Empire, we had a corrupt 
an overextended empire, found itself overturned. And along came um, the Christian influences. And what happened was that we had uh, the beginnings of uh, attempts of the Holy, Holy Roman Empire, really. We got um, attempts at building um, the Roman Catholic Church and, and all, of, all of that and, and how it extended its rule through um, people like, well, Constantine was the beginning of that in my head, anyway, at this particular moment. But forgive my history. But um, the Constantine's problem, along with all the other emperors who'd gone before, was that he could, he could impose, and this is really the point I'm getting to, I'll get there in the end, impose his beliefs, his opinions, his rule on those around him, just like Alexander had tried to do, like the Assyrians had tried to do, like the Persians had tried to do. And we start, and, and you think it ends there? No, of course it doesn't. If we carry on, we can look, here's the Islamic Empire, did exactly the same thing. And notice it's the same sort of bit of land. Have you noticed that? It's the same part of the world that's being dealt with all this time. The, um, I recognise, by the way, again, there was things going on in other parts of the world, but for the purposes of this study, I found it interesting. The Mongol Empire, look at that, Genghis Khan, how much of the world he took over, again, by conquering. And then, on from there, we've got the Holy Roman Empire, Oop, filled in that bit. And then this is the Ottoman Empire, which is sort of down here on this map, so the Ottoman Empire, which again was a, a kind of a Muslim thing. And then the Napoleonic Empire. Napoleon thought he could, could rule over everybody. Look, All the blue bit was Napoleon's bit. Well done, Wellington, eh? Um, and of course, the British Empire. We... we we actually have to say that the British Empire, I'm not proud of it, I have to say, in some respects, though there are some, God works to, for good in all of this. All those missionaries that went out, we have to thank God for. But look at the great swathe of empire that Britain, all the blue in this case, it's usually red, isn't it? But it's, um, all the blue is British. And then, during the 20th century, the Third Reich, Adolf Hitler, all of that bit, the Jap Japanese Empire, and the Soviet Empire. All empires seeking to dominate. What struck me, all, whether founded on an ideal or on a desire to conquer, all felt that they could impose rule. And I find it fascinating that God, in his picture of the world and the kingdom that he wants, turns that whole thing on his head. And he has a vision of a, a kingdom, which is nothing about marching in and taking over. I, and I don't know if you realize this, but the word empire comes from the word to dominate. Imperium. It's a Latin word. It means to dominate. Whereas... We've discovered and seen through the word of God that um, Jesus' vision of a kingdom and the vision that Isaiah had seen, all those images we spoke of a minute ago, 
but it was a very different one. He laid out a map or a journey by which we could find a kingdom. And it wasn't a kingdom where it was imposed, but that we submitted, that we bow the knee. We willingly choose to submit. And that's been far more effective, hasn't it? If you actually think about the impact of Christians across our globe, the largest group holding to a single faith in the world, Christianity has had more impact and the life of Jesus Christ has had had more impact, not because of conquest, no, but because of people who've done this. Domination, sort of an imperial kind of view, is one that Jesus doesn't seem to hold out much hope for. He says uh, in uh, Matthew 25, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. Mohammed, Stalin, Genghis Khan and Osama bin Laden didn't know or don't know what that means. And are not interested in whether men followed or follow those ideals. They believe in force of arms. They have no credible offer of a changed world, only a share in the spoils of what they conquer at the cost of others. Jesus Christ had a different way of saying it. He said, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. It's a fundamental principle of the kingdom of God, I believe, that it is grace received, not law imposed. So, I remember, that's a, a kind of laying a bit of a foundation, I suppose. I remember some years ago seeing a film, you know I like these black and white films, um, showed you a few, haven't I? Do you remember this one? A Passport to Pimlico. There's a lot of you all going, no, never heard of it. There's a lot of you doing that. That's okay. Um, Passport to Pimlico. Pimlico's a part of London, isn't it? A small little district of London. And they found some kind of ancient charter, excuse me. And in that charter, it showed that they had rights. And so they declared themselves independent. And it was really funny, because you can see the characters in it. You can imagine it was a typical, just post-war British film. And they they had this idea that they could shut themselves away and they printed their own money and they made their own laws and the whole farce thing came out of it. I believe that the most important place in which we have to achieve the dynamic rule of God is here in here. 
Why am I showing you that picture? Because I know that there are parts of my life which are like Pimlico. They want to declare independence. They want to go their own way. They want to have their own rules. And if you think about it, if you sat there and think about it, you could probably identify bits of your life where you feel a bit like Pimlico. And that you want to say, no, I'm going to go my own way. I'm not going to give kingdom rule to that bit. But until, and this is one of the kind of real things, I'm hoping that you've heard it from me before. It's not new from me, but I want to stress it again. That in terms of the kingdom of God, the place where it starts, the kingdom rule of God, it's got to be in here, isn't it? It's got to be. If there's a bit of us that's kind of locked away, then how can we possibly hope to see the kingdom rule of God extended into all the earth? Because this person and that person is also the same. How can we see the kingdom of the glory of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea if there's whole parts of our, every single person who are not given over to that rule? The first bit of the kingdom I can do anything about is this bit. You know... We, as Christians, have a tendency to speak big vision. I, I already did. I talked about the vision that God has of, the, of, of a kingdom across the earth. The bits in Isaiah are huge, aren't they? They're massive images of what, everything that's going on. But when it comes down to it, the first place it's got to start is in here. We've got to see the reign of God in here first. There's a song, actually I'd love to sing it, it goes... Reign in me, Sovereign Lord, reign in me, reign in me, Sovereign Lord, reign in me, captivate my heart, let your kingdom come. Establish there your throne, let your will be done, reign in me, sovereign Lord, reign in me, reign in me, sovereign Lord, reign in me. Father, we pray that you would reign in us, that you would rule in us, Lord. Thank you, Father. You'd think I'd have finished, but I haven't. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, I also feel that having established that it's us that needs to change, obviously, the people out there are also us's. They're all individual human beings. And I'm constantly amazed how distorted and twisted the image and message of the kingdom of God is amongst the world. I don't know about you, but even after all this time, I do get so surprised that with all the... Yes, they do know. They do teach the story of Jesus in schools. They do. Jack gets it. Lots of kids do. Um, that, but I still get this stuff. You Christians are always telling us not to have any fun. Religions are all the same. Pie in the sky when you die. I could never be good enough to be a Christian. 
That's the one, isn't it? You kind of think, oh, if ever there was an upside down, twisted around, wrong view, you know, <laughs> the, the, the other one, of course, is, is you're all a bunch of hypocrites. Well, by grace saved. Yes, hypocrites. By grace saved, hypocrites. You know, Jesus said, I've not come to, for, the, for, the, for the well, I've come for the sick. There's no getting away from the call that's on our lives to go and tell the people about the love of God which he has for us and that he came to give us life. As I've said, it's not about geography. It's ever so easy to get into this whole thing about we're going to, be, we're going to take this land and we're going to do this and we're going to go into this area. It's all about one person at a time. All of creation, one person at a time. Remember the image of the all-age meeting the other week that Hillary did with us, the shepherd leaving the 99 to find the lost one. And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. I was wandering off. We all were. And he came for me, didn't he? He came for you too, didn't he? One at a time. I, I had to share a picture which God gave me and I shared with the leadership. We were gathering the other Sunday and he, the Lord gave me this picture. I was in the cab of a combine harvester. It's kind of this sort of image. But it was night time and I could only pick out the bit of the field that the spotlights could pick out. I had to go where the spotlight showed me. And the sun came up and I could see a vast field of wheat. But then I was outside the cab and on the ground. And this is the kind of image which I found, which kind of summarizes that really. And was shown a single stalk of wheat, full and ripe. I, I had a pair of secateurs in my hand and just carefully snipped the one, just the one. And God reminded me of my call to go for the lost one at a time. We have plans. We, even now we have plans. In this church we have plans. It's our evangelical tendency, isn't it, to have a campaign or an initiative. We've got Love Basildon next year. I'm, you know, the first to admit. And they're where these are prompted by the Holy Spirit, I do believe they are the right thing to do. But in all of it, we have to have the individual in view. My call is to the lost, one at a time. Each person precious to God and not a number on a card. Question for you, who are your single stalks of grain? Who are the single stalks of grain that you've got in your view? Pray for them. I'd like to just go to a passage in Romans now because I want to move to the, the final bit of, of what I want to share about and that is about the all creation bit. Because I've dealt with the kingdom of God being not geographical but all creation from the point of view, okay, we've established that it's made up of me and it's made up of other me's these people, and those out there, all other me's. But it's also all of creation. 
And you'll be surprised, I'm going to a passage in Romans 8. And I need to go to 18, yeah. I'm going to read from uh, Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so... Find it again. But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. In us, God's placed something. I know it because when I talk to you, you you're always, always there with me on this. You have a dream of something. It's like an, an urgent desire. Lord, why can we not have a world in which all men love you, in which our whole creation is in balance, in which things don't happen like we see on the news. Lord, we eagerly wait for it. And it's like, like Paul described. The whole creation is groaning, as in the pains of childbirth. You know, childbirth ends with a child. Isn't that a great picture to use? He could have talked about the whole creation is just in pain and left it at that. But childbirth ends with a positive result. That the kingdom of God is in, in, in what's being talked about here. The whole of creation is doing that. Is it, hang on, the whole of creation? Yes, I mean the whole of creation. I think the evidence is there that the whole of creation is groaning. I think of some of the systems that... I'm going to use the word systems now because I, I think you'll understand what I mean when I say... Think about um, economic systems... Oh, they're really in balance, aren't they? We're doing really well with the economic systems. Okay. What about biological systems? Great things we're doing with genetics. Fantastic, he said sarcastically. Think of climate, climate systems, climatic systems, ecological systems. The way in which our whole world... And then uh, that's the stuff that we've got any role in. But then we come out to things like the cosmos and, and, the, and the tensions we see in our world, volcanic, um, all sorts of things which we seem to be completely outside of our, our, our control. And yes, they are. Except there was a cause. And that cause was the fall. Yes? That's where it started, with the fall. And with that, that fall came a decay. When Adam sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, it talked about the fact that um, he would have the, the dust of the ground. He'd have to struggle, and the, and the cursed was the ground. That's the words I'm looking for. Cursed is the ground. You'll have to toil for every bit of it. And ever since then, there has been this struggle 
And we've been promised the kingdom. And as a, a bit of Jesus' teaching, which I love, which helps us with that, I want to really close on this point. But the only way in which we're going to see that change is as described in Romans 8, when the sons of God are revealed and the whole of creation sees uh, God's people back turn to Jesus. But Jesus actually used these words. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It encompasses so much, those three lines. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That on earth as it is in heaven actually incorporates the whole of creation. We're looking to see a changed world, but it encompasses all of creation. And I think we have a responsibility as Christians. Sometimes we're not very good at this bit, guys. We're not very good at the um, taking responsibility for um, our world. And seeing we have an, our evangelism should include all of creation. We, sh- we should be the ones going out. And actually, uh, I commend people like Carol, for example, who are constantly beating at us with the drum of fair trade and issues like that. I know it's just one tiny bit. But it, why aren't we? And in many cases, we are. Christians are. Tear funds, for example. There are lots of areas where we can be lights on the hilltop, showing the way how we should be as people in our de- dealing with our world. Anyway, I'm not going to go into too much of that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see uh, the earth like heaven. In Revelation it talks about, Behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down. We pray, Lord, let it be that we will see that. So Father, now, as we look to you, Father, for this kingdom of God to be established that you painted so beautifully in Isaiah, Father, may we be the people who look first to ourselves, then outward to others, and then into all creation, Father, and ask that your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, let's have a drink.